Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. Hi friends, this is Aubrey from the podcast, and we are going to get to our interview with Liberty from Firestorm Books and Cafe in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about two opportunities that you have to really support the show. At Southern Queries, we're really trying to grow, we're trying to tell more stories, we're trying to bring on more guests, and we really want to do more with letting people know the great things that are going on in the Queer South. And to do some of that, we are looking for your help. We're looking for a little bit of support from you. And I wanted to tell you about two ways you can do that. First, we have a bookshop.org page. If you haven't heard about bookshop.org, it is advertising itself as kind of the alternative to Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And the idea behind bookshop.org is that it is a nonprofit, so more of the money goes to help local bookstores and booksellers. And we have an affiliate page on bookshop.org. Where, we, where we've listed some of our favorite Southern Queer Reads, where we've listed some recommendations uh, from some of the guests we've had on. If you've been keeping up with the podcast, you know a few episodes we had on Jamie Harker from Violet Valley Bookstore. Well, we have the recommendations that she has. We have Kevin Garcia's book from a few episodes ago. We've got Scott Jones's book from a few up from the one of the earlier episodes. And Bookshop.org is just a way for us to really as, as you know, I love books, so it's just a way for for Andy and I to share our love of Southern books and literature there. If you go to bookshop.org slash Southern Queries, we'll get a tiny percentage of each book per- purchase that you do, and that would be very helpful for us. The second way you can help us is that we are now officially on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Southern Queries, it's a way for you to get more of the podcast. You get more unedited versions of the conversations. For example, with today's conversation with Liberty, we actually had to cut about 20 minutes of it for time constraints. And if you join us on Patreon, you get the unedited full interview. You get access to an additional once a month uh, live video with India and I. You get access to our weekly blog where we talk about all things going on with the podcast, all things going on in queer culture and politics in the South. And it's just another way for you to show off your Southern queer pride. If anyone who joins, you get a free sticker from us. You get a free personalized postcard from either myself or India. Participate in Q&As live. You can submit questions and we'll try to answer them on air. At a high enough level, you'll get to maybe Uh, help pick a topic for us to cover in a future episode. But really, we're just looking to make this show more about you all. And so we would be grateful for any support you could give us either on bookshot.org or on Patreon. And we'll have the show notes and links. We'll have the links to both of those in the show notes. And 
we'll talk about it more in a future episode. All right, let's get to our conversation with Liberty from Firestorm Books in Asheville, North Carolina. Liberty is a member and co-founder of Firestorm Books and Coffee, an 11-year-old radical bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina. They grew up in Southern Appalachia in the 80s and 90s, but attended high school in the Triangle, where they first encountered queer culture and language that described their experience as a gender non-conforming person. Liberty lives with a cat named Dworkin and loves to read dystopian fiction, biographies, and alternate history. Thank you so much for being on the show. How are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing good. I'm calling in from uh, from Firestorm. I'm actually sitting on the couch next to some books that I guess your audience can't see, but maybe you can see. <laughs> no, that's awesome. We love We books. appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know how do you personally identify with the LGBT community and what pronouns do you use? Okay, yeah, great. Um, so I use uh, either they, them, or she, her pronouns. Um, yeah, I was male assigned at birth, but have never really identified um, as like uh, my birth assigned gender. And I guess kind of like started to encounter kind of um, some like, ways of understanding oneself like i said in or like you said in that bio um in high school um the triangle in my bio that you just like shared is a reference to uh the kind of like chapel hill durham raleigh area in the piedmont of north carolina Mm. um and it is uh the same level of south as uh where i grew up but culturally very different um and i think uh of like afforded me some like uh, encounters with like more overt and like uncloseted queer culture um uh yeah so i i under yeah i identify as uh as genderqueer or um i think starting in the like aughts like late aughts kind of began to understand that as um a transgender experience at least for myself um uh, and i am them in terms of my presentation and sometimes think of myself as uh, like a non-binary trans woman. Um, all of these terms and definitions are very fluid in my experience. And so I kind of bounce around in terms of um, what I say, <laughs> uh, um, you know, similar to the use of like they, them, or she, her pronouns. Um, I don't feel super fixed or um, concerned about exactly which term is used. Um, but yeah, so I, I understand myself as both queer in terms of my relationships and also um, trans in terms of um, my uh, self-identification. That's awesome. Also, thank you for clarifying the triangle. I, I had that. Oh. I was hmm. I was, make a note to myself to ask you about that later. <laughs> yeah, I think referring to that area as the triangle would like translate well when talking to like someone in North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia, but. Um, I don't think I I realized before we started chatting that y'all are in Texas. Um, So you have totally different geographical reference points. How did you get involved with Firestorm? Because you're a co-founder. So how did you get involved with it and how did it start? Yeah, so, okay, Firestorm started in uh, 2008. And um, yeah, so we're a little over 11 years old now. Seems like we should be over 12. This year has been so weird. I actually don't know if this year even happened and whether or not that makes us 12 years old or not. Same. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, we got our start. Um, honestly, we we drew a lot of inspiration from uh, a similar collective project in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, I and a former partner had um, lived uh, in Maryland for a, a couple of years um, in the like mid aughts and uh, had this experience of kind of watching a transition of a like kind of small anarchist collective that ran like a volunteer book space into um, a new location and a like worker cooperative model um, uh, that was a little more professionalized, a little more polished, um, and kind of doubled down on uh, this idea of cooperativism um, as a kind of like formal structure. Uh, and so that space, Red Emma's in Baltimore, Maryland, was pretty inspirational. Um, and that plus some other encounters with cooperatives um, in other mm. parts of the world uh, kind of led to us considering a kind of collective cooperative model and the idea of a bookstore and cafe as something that felt like a like a workable way to anchor community space um, in, a, in a manner that might be sustainable. Um, so I've lived in Asheville since 2005. Asheville is actually really close to where I grew up, but it's far enough away culturally that it, it feels like a different universe. Um, uh, it's like like less than 30 minutes drive from my my like hometown. But um, oh, wow. yeah, so it's actually quite close. But uh, yeah, in in that like kind of mid aught period uh, in Asheville, it was pretty clear that gentrification of downtown kind of are this this new wave of gentrification of downtown because it is important to name that there's actually a long history of um, of gentrification in Asheville, um, urban renewal, um, and the outright theft of like black homes and businesses um, mm. in the like 70s. Uh, but in this current wave of gentrification that was taking place, um, it, it felt very much that kind of like activist and countercultural like spaces would kind of be swept away um, or no longer accessible. And so we were at the time really interested in attempting to kind of like um, hold on to space in downtown, um, which is, is very much kind of like become a bit of a like tourist playground. Um, yeah. And like ultimately that was kind of unsuccessful and we left downtown um, and I wouldn't even dream of trying to like start a community project in downtown anymore. Uh, which I think speaks to how much Asheville has changed over the last um, 15 years. Yeah, um, but you're still standing. That's incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of years of scraping by. <laughs> <laughs> so Firestorm advertises itself as a queer, feminist, anarchist collective. And our listeners, I think, have a pretty good idea of the word queer. But what do you mean by feminist? And what do you mean by saying you're an anarchist collective or a co-op? Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so I think like the, the, my first thought here is that those words all to me, like they're very porous and the like, the kind of um, degree to which it's possible for me to like say what like queer is, what anarchist is and like what feminist is, like the overlaps are very like notable um, mm -hmm. in my experience and um, the histories of those words kind of flow through each other in a way um, that, I think makes it difficult to like kind of parse out exactly where one starts and the other begins. Um, I had a kind of short but lively conversation with my coworkers about this before the call. Um, uh, and 
specifically this question of like what does feminist mean to us yeah. um, is one that actually like interestingly like hasn't come up very often like people frequently ask us about the term anarchism or anarchist but like feminist is one that i feel like we, we don't get questioned about very often and um one of my coworkers uh kind of just immediately said oh well it's you know we we talk a lot of shit on like men and make jokes about like male authors and <laughs> i was like okay that's like definitely okay. like that's true like we do we do like trash talk men a lot um but i guess that's not necessarily a great definition of feminism but it is culturally significant about our collective uh but you know it's that first thought best thought so i thought i would share that um i like that in terms, <laughs> in terms of like maybe digging a little bit deeper there i guess um some things that came up for me in thinking about this um would be both kind of like a historical answer in terms of like um what maybe pieces of the way that we operate um, and how we understand ourselves are on loan from or come to us as a result of um, movement work by feminists in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, I think there are some pretty like distinct organizational patterns um, that we use. So um, the fact that we operate um, uh, as a non-hierarchical collective um, in which we put a lot of emphasis on uh, care and being whole people mm -hmm. um, and on education, cross-training, um, like sharing of resources, uh, trying to avoid gatekeeping. Like I think a lot of these types of dynamics were um, explored and sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully modeled, I think, by um, feminists in like kind of during like the second wave feminist period and, and third wave for sure too. So I think that's I think that's notable um, and starts to get into the overlap between feminism and anarchism um, in that I think some of those kind of non-hierarchical organizing patterns um, are also, of course, like uh, correctly associated with uh, the like anarchist tradition. Um, yeah. Yeah, th maybe that's like a, a good quick answer. I, there, I have like other thoughts about it because this is like very rich territory. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for the moment. I love that. I mean, the definition of feminism is advocate, advocating for women's rights, but also the, the, um, the equality of the sexes. So I feel like by even just announcing that you're a feminist, you're already kind of being an, anchor, uh, an anarchist to the system that we currently have. So I love, I love that. And I, I agree. There's so much depth i mean we could talk about this for hours <laughs> especially in yeah. the south where there are a lot of people that don't like the term feminist yeah. even though they may have feminist ideals the term has kind of gotten a, a negative connotation in a lot of southern politics so yeah. i talk to a lot of women in the south that are completely feminist in their actions and their beliefs but they don't want to say the word so i think it's amazing that you all are willing to own that word in your yeah. co-op yeah I love yeah, that. that's awesome. I'm yeah, and I totally agree with you in terms of your observation about um, about uh, the way in which feminism perhaps goes unnamed in Southern culture. Mm -hmm. I think like we're pretty comfortable identifying with like with a version of feminism that is uh, that has some some pretty big teeth. <laughs> um, uh, like I, you know, I I think a lot of us, um, you know, we think about like when bell hooks talks about like what the systems are that we're up against bell hooks names them as like white supremacist capitalist patriarchy 
And like, that's the, that's the version of feminism that I think we believe in, not perhaps the more kind of like uh, pop culture or liberal version of feminism. But I, but I think that even the pop culture and liberal versions of feminism, they have pieces, you know, they have pieces that are um, part of, part of the truth, part of the solutions. Um, and I think a lot of those are pieces that are, are widely, you know, widely embraced, even in, in cultures and spaces where feminism is a dirty word. Yeah. Now, do, do you find the community of Asheville to be LGBTQ friendly or have there been any problems being accepted by the town? Yeah. So Asheville has this reputation for being like a very liberal, like kind of small city. Um, and I think there's like, there's reason to question whether or not that um, that reputation is like deserved. Um, but it is a pretty easy place to be queer. Um, although I think the degree to which it's easy to be queer is certainly affected by like sort of an intersectional experience, right? Like for myself as like a white queer person, like I imagine it is much easier and I know it is much easier to be queer um, in Asheville than it is for, for some of my comrades who are um, black or brown. Um, mm. And so I think like there are, there's not one queer experience. Um, this is a town that loves gay money. You know, if you're, if you're a gay tourist, like, and you want to go to like a Southern city, this is like a great city. Probably no one will challenge you. You'll feel very safe. I mean, uh, in some ways for me, the, like the friendliness towards like LGBTQ folks of Asheville is sort of like in, kind of epitomized by the fact that like up until recently we had like a lesbian chief of police. So, you know, mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, it's like, you know, it's feminism. It's like, queer stuff it's like but you know but it's like within this context of like policing um which of course is a very like violent and white supremacist institution so i, I think that the i think that to the degree that we get pushback from our community um it is never overtly uh about uh how we identify or who we have relationships with i think that comes out um and we we definitely uh have situations in which we are getting pushback from the community or or even hostility from the community and transphobia shows up in in that communication um but it's never it's always subtext it's never uh kind of the the primary basis for the conflict yeah so i know that in may you all had an unfortunate incident with uh, a break-in and a robbery. Um, you all had a really interesting response to the incident. Can you tell us about how the collective reacted and what um, the community response was and how you treated this violation of your space? Yeah, sure. Um, this feels like it was so long ago now, but I'm. But I think it's a good. It's a good thing to reflect on. Um, yeah. So we we basically just had we had kind of a. a Kind of a breaking and entering sort of situation where somebody um smashed in our like front door and emptied our cash register which didn't have very much money in it like mind you like we'd been closed for several months at that point um because we i guess closed in march so two months um two and a half um yeah and has we, this happened in may june this happened in may so it actually okay. happened before this question i mean okay so obviously the question of like like policing and the role of like the police in terms of like community safety is is not a new it's not a new conversation but i think like a lot of people in the united states weren't really having that conversation in may we 
kind of like assessed the situation and um, did not, you know, take any action with regards to uh, calling the police or anything like this. But we did put uh, put some photos up on social media and just like let folks know that like we'd had some damage to our building. Mm-hmm. Um, and we invited folks who were able to do so to like consider, you know, buying a book um, from us through our website, like help us cover the costs of repair to the building and the, the like small amount of lost cash. Um, and we got like a really overwhelming response. And I think what was interesting about the response was that it wasn't just that people wanted to help out a bookstore that had um, experienced like, uh, you know, some damage. Um, I think people responded really strongly to the messaging that we used around that experience, which Mm. kind of like highlighted our lack of interest in pursuing a carceral resolution. um, And the fact that we kind of explicitly said that we, um, you know, we, we both acknowledged the like, the kind of like, emotional weight of feeling, in some ways violated, but also, like naming that we didn't feel that further punishing or criminalizing whoever was responsible would be like, an effective strategy to addressing our needs or making our community safer. Mm. Um, And that was a message that seemed to resonate um, with a lot of people. So we, we heard from a ton of folks. We had actually like a pretty significant influx of orders um, through our like website. Um, and we were able to cover all the costs of the damage, which was great. And interestingly, that all happened, you know, about a month or so before um, uh, this kind of like conversation um, around policing became so widespread as a result of um, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and so, you know, in, in some ways, I think like we kind of, we ended up having some community conversations that foreshadowed those June conversations um, about social change, um, the role of policing, anti-Blackness, and and also these questions of, you know, what are the roles of businesses in the midst of uprisings and uh, and moments of rupture and what happens when businesses are damaged or even looted? Um, uh, and, and I think that there have been other other bookstores and other businesses that have like modeled a correct response to that um, in much more extreme circumstances than us. I mean, we lost a window, um, but you know, I, I remember reading articles uh, from Minneapolis about you know a, a car lot uh, where all the cars on the lot were torched, and the owners basically said like, if this gets us an inch closer to like, you know, a just world, then like we invite everybody to come back and torch the lot again, you know? Oh, and I wow. Think, like, that's the, I that's heard the about that. Answer. Yes. It's the correct answer. Like, like, you know, and I think, um, you know, we, we had the opportunity to kind of like show what our values were in a very small way. But I think, I think even since then, there've been much more dramatic uh, um, kind of like opportunities for people to, to really show up uh, for justice. Um, well, powerful way to get your community um what's really that's what's all about you know is having all these different community people far and wide or close really step in and help things that they believe in um which is probably the better way of quote-unquote policing things is helping things for the better not just criminalizing everything um so i love that approach that was really beautiful the way you guys approach that yeah and the reality was was that you know that the damage that happened, there was no, there was nothing that 
a police report was going to do that was going to make that situation better better it yeah. could really only make the situation worse um both for our community and for the you know the individuals responsible and, and maybe even for us so um that was not a route that we took yeah absolutely what type of books does firestorm sell and then how do you decide what to stock is it a group decision or is there a book buyer that's delegated as a job yeah so um he we are a nominally general interest. I mean, we we stock a, a pretty wide range of books. Um, uh, so you know, you would you would find many or perhaps even all of the the sections that you would expect to find in like a small bookstore. Um, things like books about gardening, kids' books, fiction, poetry, um, uh, history, memoir. Um, that being said, like within those categories, I think we curate pretty heavily. So we definitely have the experience of people coming into Firestorm and looking around and being like, oh, I didn't realize you were one of those bookstores. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> presumably highlights the fact that like our books do, um, you know, our, our books are informed heavily by, by social movement. Um, mm. And I, I sometimes describe us as a social movement bookstore, just because, you know, there's got to be one more label that we can use since we're already using anarchist and feminist and queer. Um, get it, yeah. <laughs> just get all those labels. Um, yeah, so, right. So I think, you know, uh, interestingly, like we, you know, we are like a queer collective, um, uh, but like our queer section isn't actually huge um, because we have queer books in every section, you know, mm -hmm. in, instead of understanding queer literature as like a niche that like is relegated to its own bookcase. Um, you know, we have, uh, for instance, if you're looking at, uh, you know, young adult titles or something like that, that the majority of them are going to be um, LGBTQ, like stories by, you know, um, queer authors. And that's a, to some extent, that's a, like a deliberate decision about like what we want to stock. And to some extent, it's that we stock and are best at selling books that we've read and love. Um, and I think that that gets to sort of answer the second part of your question, which is how do you decide what to stock? And I think the easy answer is like we stock what we love. Um, but in addition to that, I think we we also um, give a lot of weight to uh, recommendations from our community. So I think some of our strongest sections are reflective of relationships that we have um, with folks in the community who are very generous with. Um, pointing us towards literature that maybe uh, either is a good fit for what we already have or fills in gaps. So Liberty, to be clear, you're more than just books and coffee. Um, what else do you sell and what types of events do you guys hold? Yeah, so community events are like kind of a pretty big part of what we do. Um, uh, enough so that I think it's like, I think historically we've almost thought of Firestorm as like, three pieces like it's you know it's like cafe it's bookstore and it's um like kind of like community events or um a venue even um we've really de-emphasized like cafe and coffee over the last few years like we used to have like staff that really just did like baristaing and like food production we don't do that anymore with regards to events um so we are of course not open right now um and have been sure. closed since mid-march so that has really changed what it means to like 
to be like um, a host for community like and grassroots content. Mm. Uh, so I guess maybe two answers the prior to the pandemic and hopefully again in the future answer is that <clears throat> we've had a extremely packed um, community calendar uh, hosting groups doing everything from kind of meetups, uh, film screenings, puppet shows, uh, author events, workshops, just a very wide range of content is one off and some of which is more on an ongoing basis. Like, you know, we've got a really great local organization that does um, kind of like a books to prisoners program. And so they once a month set up and take over the back half of our store and package books to send to folks who are incarcerated. Um, so, and, and a lot of these things are, you know, these are almost all things that are just sort of like free and open to community members to drop in on. And on any given day, you know, pre-COVID, we might have, you know, one to three different events on our calendar. Of course, that has all shifted and it's, it's like, um, it's very, it's a very different world now in terms of community events. And it is still really important to us to like offer that to our community and to be able to bring people together, even if it's virtual. Um, but our ability to produce that level of content, um, you know, we, we're now kind of doing more uh, uh, selective events that are to have been more literary in their focus, although we're, we're kind of starting to expand out on that. Um, so uh, like we've got um, a workshop uh, right now uh, coming up tomorrow, um, and that workshop is um, specifically for uh, writers and authors, not necessarily professional, um, who are looking to kind of interrogate their own identities and integrate equity into their writing more effectively. Nice. Um, so that's going to be really cool. Uh, on November 1st, we have a really awesome um, author panel lineup that's going to be talking about uh, the history of abolitionism and social change. Um, one of those authors uh, writes specifically. Well, actually, they all write heavily about this house, but one author uh, is a, a co-author of um, Dixie Be Damned, which is actually our best-selling book over the last, I think, five years. Um, it's a really good one uh, and is grounded in Southern history and kind of like moments of rupture and solidarity. So, yeah, so author events are, are always like a, a, you know, something that we're excited about. But um, But we've been really trying to figure out other formats that are more participatory for folks. So um, kind of since early in the pandemic, we've been hosting more um, like uh, discussion-based groups um, virtually. Uh, we have a visionary readers group, which has been ongoing for, for quite a few months now that uh, pairs fiction and nonfiction books and then kind of invites people to come and like have conversations about them um, using this framework of visionary fiction. So visionary fiction being titles that are kind of like speculative fiction, um, looking at the world like as it could be and offering something to change makers and activists in terms of like what the content is and how it might be kind of read and then applied uh, to our world and our struggle and our work. Um, so I think like uh, books like um, uh, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, um, we recently read Fire on the Mountain. Um, by Terry Bisson, which is a really awesome work of alternate Southern history. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever encountered that one, but I would strongly recommend it as like a really cool um, book that explores this question of 
kind of like how could things have turned out differently um, uh, if specifically pivoting on the idea of a successful raid at Harper's Ferry. Um, with John Brown, by, yeah. John. Yeah, by John Brown and Harriet Tubman um, in this history. Yeah. Harriet I mean, Tubman's if... presence is actually the thing that tips the the history so that instead of a failure, the raid becomes a success because... Um, because in the, right. the originally, historically, she didn't go there, but if she had... Right. And... See, and this is part of why we wanted to talk to... Uh, this is why we're talking to more bookstores is because... I've spent so much time reading political books and then I kind of went away from politics and started reading a lot of fantasy. Mm -hmm. Now I'm coming back to more Southern queer writers, but I'll be spending so much of my holiday just reading a lot of these titles that you're recommending. So that's amazing. Oh, that's really cool to hear. And for anyone who's hearing this and is thinking like, oh gosh, I'm so sad that I'm hearing about like events that like are far in the past. Now we do record pretty much not not all the workshops necessarily, but we record pretty much all the author events and a lot of the other ones, um, and then have those uh, hosted on our YouTube channel, or there's uh, also some that are audio only that are available on our website. So that's Ooh, a cool fabulous. resource if you're just looking for something fun to watch or listen to, um, or if anything here kind of sounds like something you're sorry you missed. <laughs> Ooh, that's awesome. That's good to know. Um, so... Liberty, I think one of our last questions for you today is what does being queer in the South mean to you? And why do you think it's important that we talk about it? I mean, I, I guess I would say that, like, I feel like queer culture in the South takes like a particular form. Um, and as someone who has primarily lived in the South, like, uh, I don't know that I can necessarily like compare and contrast it super effectively. Um, but uh, I feel like I can, I can like picture it. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, I, I will say, I think that like, um, queer community in the South, um, is, there is a sense, I think, because historically, like, um, so many of our communities have not been welcoming. I think that there's a particular type of solidarity that exists, um, in queer Southern communities, uh, that is, um, like very palpable. Um, yeah, so that's that's a thing that I would reflect on. You know, for me, like growing up, um, I remember as like a middle schooler, my my parents were pretty liberal um, uh, and like open about things. Um, uh, I remember asking, you know, kind of my parents like why there weren't any like visible like gay people in our community, um, because I, I kind of, as a, as a middle schooler, I remember kind of getting to this point where I was like aware that queer people existed, but like, but like literally didn't see any in my small town. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents kind of laughed at me and then explained that uh, two of their friends whose house I spent a lot of time at were gay men. <laughs> um, and I had been going to these really? two gay men's home for my entire life um, without understanding that as queer space or or even understanding them as gay men um yeah. they were just these two guys that lived together i mean it's um, just so normalized kids. right as a kid you're just like oh i go play at their house and they feed me pizza or candy and i'm happy yeah and <laughs> and it, it just like i think like looking back on that it says like so much about like queer visibility in like small town like in small towns in like rural small towns because i did grow up in a pretty small town um and like the fact that like I was interested in queerness and was like starting to look for it, but like couldn't even identify it because it was because of the way that it was 
sort of protectively um, coded uh, in, in that community. Um, and I think um, the queer relationships that I um, uh, kind of experienced in my current community are very different than that um, and are very, very loud and celebratory and visible. Um, but I think that those loud and celebratory and visible relationships are, are informed by experiences like my own of, um, of looking for ourselves in community and not being able to find it, um, even mm. when it's right there, uh, right there in front of us. So I don't know. And I'm not sure that that's like specific to the South, um, but I, I do think it's, I think it's, it's a rural queer phenomena for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. You. Sure. I um I just wanted to comment, Liberty. I I was um, at Pride in Atlanta, and everyone um, says, you know, Happy Pride. It doesn't matter if you know the person. You walk into a business, and even the business clerk will say Happy Pride. Like no matter where we are. But mm -hmm. when I went to Pride elsewhere in the U.S., no one said Happy Pride. It mm. was almost. Um, it wasn't as palpable like you were saying. And I have found my experiences in the South, specifically in that triangle that you're talking about, way more intense and welcoming and warm, but almost uh, community-based because there's so much oppos uh, opposition to our own beings. Um, and I find that when I go to bigger cities that being queer is more well-known or accepted I, I don't find that community as easily. It's a lot harder to find the footing. So I really appreciate yeah. your your thoughts on that. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Liberty. And Liberty is a co-founder and one of the co-op members at Firestorm Books and Coffee. To keep up with the co-op, you can find them at firestorm.coop, and that's their website. And on Instagram, they're at Firestorm Co-op. Thanks, Liberty. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you're interested in sponsoring the show or just have general feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at southernqueriespod at gmail.com. You can find more information about the show and our guests at southernqueries.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This show is hosted, written, and edited by India Bastian and Aubrey Calvin. The theme song is mixed by Allison Holly. India is responsible for the website and our social media, and Aubrey is responsible for the show research. <laughs>